Welcome to RPG Ramblings, a weekly show exploring various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. In the first segment, Mark Hunt and I discuss early gaming experiences with Champions in Twilight 2000. Then Mark shares the various ways one can approach running a Gangbusters game, or any game set in the 20s. We dip into game design as Mark explains how he used existing BX mechanics in different ways. We also discuss his World War II game, The Frontline, as well as his Western, Tall Tales. We do a deep dive with Diogo Nogueira, an artist, writer, and game designer from Brazil. We discuss game mechanics behind his post-apocalypse fantasy game, Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells, and we also take a dive into the mechanics behind his urban fantasy game, Dark Streets and Darker Secrets. Along the way, Diogo reveals that living in Rio de Janeiro isn't exactly paradise. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the show. All right, thanks for having me, Jeff. So what's your gaming history like, Mark? Oh, geez, I've been playing since 1979. I've been playing a long time. I've been playing, I started with D&D and played everything underneath the sun. You know, superhero games. So, so what superhero Gosh, games were you everything. playing at that time? So were you playing? Oh, Champions was my number one game back then. Super detailed. And we would go for days, hours, summer, all summer long. I mean, you know, the math, people are like, oh, if you get a group, and everyone's into it, and they all understand the math behind champions. It is a beautiful game, but you got to have everybody on the same page. Oh, I agree. I agree. So, did you did you do any Marvel heroic? Oh yeah, we did. But it was like, yeah, let's go back to champions. We did V and V, all that <laughs> stuff. Uh, let's go back to champions. You know. Oh yeah, we played the daylights out of champions too. Did you did you play any post apocalyptic games? Like Gamma uh, we did World. Some Gamma World. It was okay, but yeah, it was mostly you know. Champions, Champions, D and D. We looked at Call of Cthulhu once. And we were like, Red Three is like, nah, this ain't for us. So, so, so what we call Cthulhu caused you to not really want to go that direction. The whole thing is just hackneyed and contrived. I just Cthulhu just doesn't buy it for me. There's nothing, just doesn't work for me. I just don't doesn't hit. No, that's fair. That's fair. I just wasn't sure if it was the system or if it was the... No, the system's fine. I like RuneQuest. It was a great system. So did you guys actually play in RuneQuest? Oh, yeah. We did RuneQuest, Powers and Perils. We named, you, you name it. And if it was in the 70s and 80s, we played it. <laughs> did, you, did you get into any uh, Traveler campaigns? Oh, <laughs> I got Traveler number one, first print over there. <laughs> signed by Mark Miller himself. <laughs> Heck, he gave me the dice. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I played a whole lot of Traveler. Especially, you know, Classic Traveler, that was my game. Yeah, we, 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 we like you, I think there's kind of like two types of groups. There are the people that just play D&D and nothing else. And then there's other groups that just played everything and anything. And I so we, we fell into the ladder as well. Um, so so you game through, you game through uh, high school, Afterwards, did you continue gaming or did you stop? Yeah, we game. When I, yeah, when I went to the military, I took some, you know, a couple of books with me and went off to the service and game when I was overseas and game when I was when I came back. So, how was it gaming overseas? Like, was that a, that make things easy to get a group together? To make it hard? Was your situation kind of easy? No, on base it was real easy. You know, all you had to do was put out things as running a game and 
you had more people than you could shake a stick at. Well, is it because there's a lot of, is it because there's a lot of downtime at certain portions where people just were stuck or how that it was a lot of downtimes plus people just you know wanted to play D. &D. so was it mostly D, &D that you, you played in the military we did uh twilight no this was weird we did a twilight 2000 campaign on the folder gap in the folder gap <laughs> So that was kind of surreal, you know. <laughs> you know, you know. I was from during. I was right in the middle of the Cold War, of course. During, yeah. I left Germany three days after the wall came down. Oh my! That tells you what era I was in. Right. right in the middle of it. So it was just kind of surreal playing with real authentic maps in a real authentic area. <laughs> yeah, with authentic equipment, with authentic with guys divisions. You know about, and the guys who know the military really well. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think, you know, to me, the post-apocalyptic genre, I don't think um, sells well to younger generation. Yeah, that's kind of weird. It, I agree. They, they, they grew up in a different mindset from the last 20 years or so. I think so. I think we kind of grew up that, I mean, we believed that it was potential, that this was going to happen, potentially happen, at any time. I mean, you know, the idea was that, that, um, you know, we weren't that far away from a red Dawn situation. Yeah. I was going to say red Dawn was a reality to us. It could happen. It yeah. It happened in moments. And even in comic books, I remember they're, they're touting, um, Reagan's, uh, defense shield where yeah. it would, they would show this, they'd take a, a, a lid of a, like a, of a canister, drill holes in it, drop, drop these tokens through there or whatever coin, I can't remember what it was and show how, even though they'd launch like a thousand missiles, only like a hundred would get through. Right. Gee, only a hundred. And so I think the way we dealt with that stress is we kind of made it something that we could tangibly interact with. Right. And moral project was another game we played. Oh yeah. Same thing when you when you take the, the America uh, the map and you literally launch missiles and see what you buy. Once it dud, what went far? Yeah, think about that. <laughs> I'll yeah, try to do that today. Yeah, right. You take your protractor out and you you would draw the circles <laughs> or your compass. I mean, and draw yeah. the circles and and I remember they'd even show actual sites that were targeted. Yeah. And we lived in uh, well, we lived near Peoria, Illinois. And the nice thing was it wasn't it wasn't. Um, uh, slated for a nuclear strike is slated for a biological strike. <laughs> so, oh, that's all. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Just a third arm. It's okay. That's what Gamma World comes into it, you know. <laughs> so I think, you know, that, that is, I, I, I think for, you know, people younger, it's like, it, they may be okay with the setting, but for us, it's just like, I'm super nostalgic for that. I mean, I really, Oh yeah. <laughs> but the young people don't want to play that. I mean, my group is, <clears throat> Probably half the people are young people. They're not. They're not for that kind of nonsense. Yeah. I got dice older than half my old group. I did. <laughs> I played with last most recently. You know, I got. You know, I don't think none of them was over the age of thirty. And like, I got dice older than you, kid. You know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you uh, do the Kickstarter for the newest um, Twilight Two Thousand? No, I didn't. I just I wanted to, but I would probably never play it. At this point, I mean, so I figure, why spend the money on something? I'm not going to, it's just gonna, another thing that sits on the shelf. Yeah, it, um, I did, it, it released out the, 
I won't say the beta, but it it is it is really nice, but also realizing it's also retains a fair amount of uh, crunchiness. I think it's simplified, but it's like mm, I don't know that I've got the chops to 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 take and devote the time and set up the maps and the you know angle for the claymores and the. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, but, you know, I really would love to play it. So I may end up uh, just seeing if I can find someone online that's running it, but, uh, but it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, if you, if you get a chance to see the art and such, but it's, it's well, definitely. Yeah, the beautiful. art looks great. If I'm at Gary Con and I'll see something, I get a chance to run it out, you know, play it. I'll run it there and I'll go do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But as they, for a campaign here. Nah. They, they simplified the dice system. It's really, it's really pretty sweet. So, but it's just, but still it's, you know, it's, it's still, a combat game largely yeah well that's the nature of the beast yeah it, it well it is and i should you know to be fair i mean it's kind of on the can right i mean i can't complain about yeah. you know yeah. you know, chili with beans <laughs> when i buy yeah. it it says so the beans on the with the chili so how dare uh, to be beans in here you know oh yeah yeah but it's kind of cool it's like well they got set up for vehicle combat and and the scenarios look kind of cool. I mean, it really, it, I think it, it really is a, probably a great translation, a modern redoing of Twilight 2000. I never, I never played it before, but I, I will say that I, the campaign, it was always a hook for me as far as starting in Poland and trying to make it home. Yeah. I can see that. I like that campaign. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that, that that kind of pulls on my heartstrings a bit, but uh, maybe for even though I never played it, but it just it's one of those deals. So, so you're in the military, you guys are playing, then you you leave the military. Yep. Okay. So at that point, are you still gaming? Yeah, I'm gaming, but it's just not as much as you know. It's getting lesser and less, you know. Instead of like in high school, it's literally like every other day, you know, because you know, then down the you know, military is like, you know, once a month or once every two months. And then now it's like, recently, I haven't played in so long, it's ridiculous. Right. You know, it gets lower and lower as time, you know, more more life on the plate, less game off the shelf, you know. Yeah, I found for me, there was a, a, a big uh, gap, you know, when the kids were young, uh, you know, just trying to get through life. But um, I think my, my gaming kind of cranked more back up about, you know, maybe about... Uh, uh, maybe about 12, 15 years ago, but it's still nowhere near what it was in the heyday. We'll never get that back. You might, unless we're into some uh, <laughs> some great, you know, child, old old folks home that actually has a gaming group. You know, well, I think that's going to happen. I think I think we'll that's going to happen. I think we'll all converge somewhere. Not sure where <laughs> that will be. Yeah. Hopefully, somewhere that the streets don't freeze in the wintertime. Yeah, geez, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> so, yeah, so gaming was off and on for a while. Then it just, you know, life. Then you get in and a little while ago, I was thinking, you know, you know, I played you know, gangbusters all the time. And I was like, you know what? I wonder what happened to this old game. So I started looking for it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so, so like, so for Gangbusters, for you, was this a game that you played back in back in the day? Oh yeah, I played it a lot. I literally have, <laughs> I got yeah. When I talk about running for like a dozen people for two or three years straight, and I'll play in a week at a time over campaigns. Just I played it for 
long time, long time. Lots of lots of different versions of it. I played everything in it you could think of, from playing cops and robbers to playing uh, cloak vigilantes in it. I've played uh, you know everyone's uh, reporters, everyone's mobsters, everyone's detectives, everyone's a mixed group. I played every kind of way you could think of. I've played gangbusters. Yeah, it's those that aren't familiar. I mean, the gangbusters is, is centered on the twenties, so and I would imagine probably mid thirties would probably fit in as well. So, but I think the idea is kind of around prohibition. Um, Gangsters are, are, uh, it's kind of more dealing with, with, I think the gangsters, the rise of the mob and kind of dealing with the, the chaos and before the crash. Yeah. Well, you got the 13 years of uh, prohibition and that's pretty much it. And it also takes place in other parts of the world. You can have, like, for instance, you could do down in uh, Australia in Razorhurst, where there were two ladies who literally ran the streets with razors and controlled the whole part of the city of Sydney. Or Ber- Berlin. You can you know you could do all kinds of places. You could it doesn't or you can go over in England and have your you run hoodlums and stuff over there. And you know, Irish mob, you got those guys. You, it's a lot of different stuff you can do. So was the was it mob movies that that kind of inspired all this or i mean what's what's the um what's the input for you as far as like you know like i saw it and it was kind of cool back in the day but it never really you know triggered for me but what is it about for you that caused you to say yeah this is this is it i was a cop i wanted to be a cop i was a cop in the service i was a cop when i got out so it was great i could be i could go out and bust guys even in the game it was great <laughs> You know, so I, you know, after 25 years of being law enforcement, why not? That's something you know. So why do what you know? Right, but even but in your in your early years, was it was it movies? Was it uh, what? I mean, what was the thing? Or what, did you buy the game? And the game hooked you into that whole genre. The, the game hooked me in the whole genre. Okay, so you 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 saw this, and you're like, this is cool, and then because yeah. I and I know back in back in our day, it's like old movies would play like on Sunday afternoons oh. and oh yeah I definitely will watch I watch an old cowboy movie I watch old westerns I watched old you know gangster pictures I, I love film noir that was my you know and then when I seen a film noir game like this that was like the other pool the other pool like right. Blank. I'd watch all those you know I love like for instance me and my dad we would sit and watch Kojak we would watch you know Rockford Files and then when this had a gangster you know and you could be detectives that was a huge pull you know, I was like, oh, this kind of relives that. Yeah, and I guess in a lot of ways, too, it's even that can even th- those types of shows can also inform the game as well, as far as, you know, even though it's not that type of setting, it's that type of, of you know, mystery or, you know, police or investigative. So, I mean, I, I can see where even looking at more modern uh, media can still kind of inform the game, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if somebody did this and you have to solve this yeah. mystery? Right. The thing is, not it's not all. Everyone's a gangster in uh, in gangbusters. You could all be detectives or, or a magazine, like starting a magazine. You're all part of the magazine company, and you're investigating all these strange crimes and different stuff, and you get embroiled in all the stuff that's going on. You can even do politicians. They have rules for running elections. Even it's it's got it all. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is interesting. I think a lot of times we kind of just it's easy to discount, you know, playing, you know, it, it's easier to think of like 
dragons and orcs or fantasy and, and laser swords. Mm-hmm. But we a lot of times discount that how much in the, we'll call it the mundane, how exciting the mundane can be. Like we, we overlook that the lives we live are actually, you know, in time periods that there is things going on that's interesting and exciting. And people often forget that some of the greatest monsters are humans. Oh. <laughs> that's the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> that is a truth. Seriously. <laughs> so, yeah, it, so when you, so you took, uh, we're going to cover this at another time where you yeah, yeah. purging of the IP, but what we'll say that you did purchase, um, uh, uh, the rights to publish gangbusters uh, under a different system. But, um, uh, but one of the things I was going to talk about, what I find is an interesting choice is that, uh, looking at your games, they're all based on the BX system. Yep. So, uh, what drew you to saying, this is a system I want to use for like when you started out did you just start out was gangbusters your first game no bx so i'm sorry uh the first game that you you published was it the gangbusters um first game i published no it wasn't so what's the first game that you published uh first gangbusters i think was toward the last game i published <laughs> come to think about it or toward the end yeah the the first game I published, let's see here. I'm trying to think back. I did some adventures. Let's see here. I did uh I did uh the front. That was the uh, a black hack hack. That was before Gangbusters. So the so the front is a black hack? Hack? Yes. Yes. It's oh. it's a, it was the in fact, it was the very first black hack. <laughs> It was the very, very, very first one. Wow. The, it was the very first one. Okay, so let's just, because uh, I <laughs> know of it, but I'll let you, since you understand, ex- could you explain what the Black Hack is specifically? The Black Hack basically is uh, a variation of, of rule in BX. Uh, I think it's page uh, 36, where you roll, if you, there's always a chance you can roll any stat or under. Right. That's the whole game mechanics. Roll underneath your stats and under. It's a variation of that one rule in BX rule set. That's all. And then they add different stuff on top of it, but that's basically the whole game. I think the whole, isn't the concept that it's it's very simplified, so it's meant to run Extremely fast? It's simplified, yep. Make, run up, roll, instead of rolling to hit, you roll underneath your uh, strength or dexterity. That's the whole thing. If you got an 18, roll 18 or less. 15, 15 or less. It's roll D20 and go. So you, you so all of a sudden you've got the peanut butter, which is the black hack, and then you've got the chocolate, which is uh World War II. Yep. So what made you decide to put the chocolate in the peanut butter? I mean, what was the what was the, <laughs> the situation there? G.I. Joe, <laughs> the real American hero. That was the peanut butter inspiration. Why not run G.I. Joe? <laughs> <laughs> and then I could also use it to run yeah, colonial marines. I could also use it to run stormtroopers. I could use any kind of military game. I can literally strip out and run the front run. And it's been doing great. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So, so um, because there's really not very many, I can't recall, in, unless they've been, they're mixed with something else like, uh, um, <clears throat> like Octoon Cthulhu or right. weird wars 
I don't know really, I'm not saying there aren't any, but I don't know of any World War II RPGs that are strictly World War II RPGs. Not many. There's one, uh, what is it? Operation White Box. There's one. That's a D20 base. Is that, a, is that a, like, how old would that one be? Uh, around the same time as the front, a couple of years old. I probably okay. guess about 10 years old by now. Okay. Or, you know, close to it. And so for the um, for the front, uh, since it's obviously in the military, so what sort of is it mainly around action that it's centered? Is it more like running missions, or is there? Some it's more RP like running missions. Okay, so it's kind uh, of meant you can to play. Uh, you can play commandos, military guys on the front line, of course, the front, or you can play partisans and stuff like that. It's pretty much it. Okay. And so uh, then it's really uh, probably works really well with the, the miniatures and I imagine it's set up for that kind of, not that you're forced to, but is it kind of set up for miniatures combat? Good, but you don't need it. It's just all theory of the mind because you're basically, you're playing a grunt. Right. You know, ground roofing unit, non-training. Put out front and go. <laughs> Get my rifle and you got your little squad and you run these little missions. Like for instance, I used uh, the village of Hamlet. As the background, you're kind of sweeping clear through the village of Hamlet. All the bad guys, and all this, you have to build in the layout, and you can use all the old D&D modules and stuff, turn into, go into the dungeon. Now it's an underground bunker. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead of an orc, it's a commando. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Think outside the box. Don't have to use, okay, I got all this stuff. Just, re, you know, change the dressing on it and run it. Oh, Exactly. Uh, in fact, I used um, the um, the Cold of the Reptile God. I ran a 30s uh, horror action game using the hero system. And that yeah. just like converted almost right. I mean, that was just so simple to do. I just put it in Arkansas and um, put it on a map and everything just seemed legit at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I've done that in the you know, Call of Cthulhu. I've done, you know, we've run, you could take any Catholic Call of Cthulhu stuff, just get rid of the the monster crap and just run it a straight venture. <laughs> I mean, just any game that you like, if you think long enough, you can convert it over. Yeah, and I think especially, uh, you know, not, now that you mentioned that, you know, the Call of Cthulhu stuff would work really well because it could just be a simple crime rather than being yeah. a cultist. It could be, you could just change the motives, take out a few things and you got what you got and just, and just change yeah, the... Yeah. So Tall Tales, so <clears throat> was Tall Tales second then, the uh, Western RPG? Yeah, yeah. Tall Tales was the test bed. The test bed for uh, what I wanted to do with uh, uh, Gangbusters. I wanted to see how I could make the mechanics work and how everything would go like that. So yeah, once I did that, everything fell into place. You know, it did well. So I said, okay, I'll try it. Of so, course, I did some um, so some this, modules and stuff like that. So, so at this point, just kind of to, to break through. So, you are were you thinking about um, acquiring uh, Gangbusters, or have you already at this time done it? Then you're running yeah, it. I've already had it. Okay, so you had it, point. and so this sounds a lot like um, uh, with uh, Fred Hicks and Rob Donahue with the with Fate. So they wanted to do um, Dresden Files. 
But before they did Dresden Files, they end up doing the uh, that pulp action. I can't remember at the, at the moment, but they did a oh yeah yeah Spirit of the Century. Spirit I think. Of the, yep, Spirit of the Century. So Spirit of the Century was their test, like their test bed. So uh, so this really was strictly a test bed for you to prove out your concepts, and and you found that it all works. So what were the specific things that you were concerned about as far as would they work or not work? The weirdest the weirdest thing was. Um, the armor class, clothes for armor class. That's what I do. The style, I use style of your clothes to represent your armor class. Oh, so explain to that to me that uh, a little bit more. So what do you mean the style of clothes? Say for instance, you know, gangsters are always known for dressing nice and looking good, especially in the twenties, you know, there that was the whole motif. The better you look, the more respected you are, better off you're supposed to be. So I said, okay, well, work clothes give you the lower armor class, suits, ties, you know, fancy dresses give you a higher armor class. Just, you have to use some kind of number and it's just, and it fits the motif. So of course, players spend their money to buy custom suits, you know, nice fedora hats so they look better and get a better armor class. You're right, because people in general in games don't really care about what the characters wear. But you said, you know what? But if you really were living, because obviously, the way we dress now versus the way people would dress, you know, 80 years ago, 50 yeah. years ago, going out to dinner, going out to a movie. Yeah, we're some scrubs. We are. You see those pictures. When they go out to a movie, the man's wearing a suit and a hat and a tie. The woman's wearing a nice dress and heels. And uh, it's an event. You do not go out, I mean, in jeans and a t-shirt. That would be... In pajamas. In pajamas, yeah. It's like... So what you said is, you know what, there's a theme here and that the, the theme would be people, people respected people in clothing and that an idea that you're also, uh, you're kind of bringing that whole, uh, that, that whole feel to the mechanics and actually incentivize people to actually think about their character. And so I suppose, you know, you're, even though your nice suit holds up really nice, gives you a nice armor class, but I would assume that um, if you get caught in a fire and whatever, it's like, oh, trying to buy a new suit. Yeah. You're like, what? Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Or, like in you, um, Tall Tales, I have, a, I have like some optional rules, two optional rules. One is you can get your hat shot off and lose, you know, the, the first attack. Oh, like a Boom, shield? Caught out. It's like sending yeah, like a shield. shield. Like sending a shield, except for your hat, you know. <laughs> the Western, you always, pew, you know, always got the head knocked off. Yeah. Well, I think the thing yeah, is, but... I mean, because BX is really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it could be a pretty deadly system. It's not as forgiving as a lot of modern systems. So I think having a mechanic like that does make sense. Yeah. And you could port that right over into the, you know, it was common. You get shot in the arm. Boom. Right. Okay. So you're taking minus for the rest of the day, but. You, you lived <laughs> exactly and, and the next day you're fine because they're always fine in the westerns the next day right but it was the mechanic it's it's you know spaghetti western tall tale that you could get away with these things exactly then, like for instance in tall tales i have like the, the, you know a, a snake oil salesman is one of the character classes so i took some of the spells and abilities and I put them into you know mad marvelous elixir in the, or Professor Peter's pet pills, and it gives right. you like, you know, speed, you know, and then, you know things like that. But of course, they have a chance of not working, right? <laughs> you know, and you get sick. But you know, what? Of course, 
that's what the snake oil salesman does. He sells these, you know, shiesty stuff and great when they work, bad when they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know until you try it. Correct. You won't know until you take it. <laughs> so, so what other mechanics were you concerned about that you felt needed to be proved out? You know, I just wanted to know. I knew West, I knew the guns would work. And how, I knew it could scale all that down. The idea of the modern class into, instead of like, you know, magic youth, could I translate modern classes into, you know, BX? So I looked at all the different stuff like that and how I could do it. Like, for instance, I, I don't use cash. I use gold pieces and tall tails. And they said, one guy was like, why would you use gold pieces? Well, there was $20 gold pieces. Gold was always the thing you were trying to rob the bank to get the gold. It was always the gold bullion, the silver mine. It was stuff like that. Right. That was a common theme in Westerns, the gold. So why not? When you went to, you know, always translate your, your gold into dollars, but everyone always wanted the gold. When you went somewhere, oh, gold fever. That was common. Well, I think what you're saying is rather than trying to simulate exact economies, you said, what, yeah. what is fun? And the fun yeah, in the Western is, is the gold, not, not the, you know, the, you know, I got three bits or I got whatever it may be, you know, or Confederate dollars right. or whatever it may be, who knows? I'm just saying is like, you're saying, yeah. I don't, we don't need it because nobody's playing this for an, a, a true economic history. We just want the fun stuff. And that's what, and that's games fall into that trap. When they do historical stuff, they get so tied up in the minutia, they forget the fun. You're telling a tall tale. You're telling a Western, spaghetti Western type game. You're having fun. Of course, you get the hat knocked off. You can, you know, you can kick, you know, shoot locks out. I got rules for shooting locks out and stuff <laughs> like that. All that's in there. <laughs> You're right, because I mean, it's like I, I was, um, it's kind of like flaming oil in D&D. &D. Yeah. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It does, it's not gasoline. <laughs> but we, we right. treat it like gasoline. <laughs> you know, well, sure you, we do. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, it, but does it really matter? Probably not that we're, we're not trying to simulate reality. We're trying to, I think what you're doing is even further is you're trying to uh, emulate or simulate a, a genre. Yeah, a feel of the genre. Yeah, so a, a West, I want to feel like when I'm playing this, I'm not a real person in the West who's going to have to worry about gangrene because, Correct. you know, I got my toe shot or I got bit by a Gila monster. Now I'm, I'm getting sepsis or whatever. Who knows? You're not really concerned about real world physics like tomorrow project. You know, we're not counting how much radiation, right. how many rads we've we've absorbed over the last month and determine whether we're going to get radiation sickness. You're saying is, you know, what is the fun? What are the tropes? And let the players engage directly with those tropes and make those tropes part of the mechanics. Like one of the saving throws is riding. You know, can you ride your horse? And you don't roll, you don't roll the saving throw to ride your horse, because anyone could ride your horse. It's you roll your saving throw when it's shot or you buck off and you need to recover from right. getting something bad happen. So a lot of people see the saving throws and thinking they're, you roll to do it. No, you roll when something bad happens. So you have a saving throw for it. So you, it works. So how'd you do the saving throws as far as, as that goes? So I mean, what do, 
uh, willpower, reflexes, and uh, fortitude. Okay, so they're uh, based off of stats observation. then? Yeah, observation, which is, and then writing. Those were the saving throws for five saving throws for that. So pretty much, you know, do you spot, you know, you're going to be ambushed, already happened, give me an observation check. You know, roll your saving throw. Boom, there it is right there. If you didn't make it, you could even do, everyone make a save, observation save, and that could be initiative if you wanted to. Those who make it, go first. Those who don't, well, suffer the consequences. Because you didn't spot the guy in time. Right. That makes sense. So was there anything that you thought you would, you would have to change, but you didn't have to change in the rules? I didn't have to, I didn't have to change nothing. They all kind of flowed. You kind you, of just went with it. <laughs> so you just able to reskin it, just put a new coat of paint on it and, and called it good. I had to add a, I had to add a, I had to add a couple doors, houses and, uh, you know, shingles, but it wasn't just a straight reskin. It was a lot of add to it, you know, but yeah, it worked overall. It worked all right. That's interesting. So what sort of, what sort of tips would you give to somebody wanting to run, say something, uh, in the twenties or even in the Westerns? I mean, would you recommend watching movie, certain movies, or I mean, is there anything oh, that yeah. you would give for somebody that comes into this kind of, um, you know, is being new to them? Two big things. One, have fun and don't be so tied to the rules that you can't have fun. If you just do those two things, everything else will fall into place. I don't have to explain. Like, I usually use Western to draw someone in. Everyone knows what a Western is when I say we're going to play a Western. Guys, you know, you might have an easier time getting your comrades to play a role-playing game if you start them out in the Western. Then starting them out in a wizard and a dragon or orcs. Some people are like, that's, you know, too much. But everyone wants to be a cowboy. Right. Give them a rope and they off, they're on their way. And then, oh, yeah, let's get them hooked in that. Then, okay, let's try this. Well, you already know the game mechanics. Let's go ahead. Now you're a knight instead of just being a, you know, a cowboy. And, you know, it's just how it depends on how you want to emulate it. Like for a while, everyone knew about police detectives, things like that. In the 70s, that was huge, being detectives and stuff. So that's what I used to pull people in the Game Busters. You know, Beretta and Kojak and, you know, Starsky and Hutch, all those guys, you know, SWAT. Boom, everyone knew those. So take something simple that you love, emulate it into a game, and play what you love. Should work. Yeah, I also noticed that you have what was called a call to arms page, uh, some random tables for generating um, adventures, or at least ideas, which I thought was really well done. I mean, those types of hooks, I think, help. Or maybe you don't want to necessarily wade through you know, a bunch of TV shows or pull up a bunch of pulp uh, novels <clears throat> that that provides some random tables. I think that really provides some very fun situations that engage the characters immediately in a way that the players can can mentally, you know, hook into without without a lot of effort. And that was my goal is to have something that, OK, I need something to play. Roll a couple of dice. Let's just go. You shouldn't overthink a lot of this stuff. Just you need to have fun. The people you're playing with supposed to be your friends. Why not have fun with them? Well, and and looking at the difference between uh, the BX version that you put out and the older version, I noticed that you know 
I think by the simplification, you get away with having to look up at a chart and determine all the different parameters and what percentages they add or subtract. I mean, there's a point where I think, you know, like you talk about, you know, being able to keep the, the momentum going and the having fun. Once you start flipping through a book and trying to add three or four modifiers and find out which page they're on, it, it, it can kill that momentum quickly. Like, like, for instance, like in the in Gangbusters BX, I have a roughing up table where you can rough up, you know, like in typical in the movie, they grab a guy and they rough him up and they get the information. Well, I use the turning table from Clerics. And you, it's the same mechanics, similar mechanics. It depends on who the guy is. Is he a thug or is he, you know, police officer? How tough you are, can you browbeat this guy to give you information? And that was a common theme in most of these era movie games, you know, getting this guy to talk. Right. Well, and I think that's just it, because really in most D&D games, that's never considered, uh, very rarely a consideration. Normally it's just a, you know, defeat the enemy physically, but not really the idea of, you know, either intimidating somebody or causing them to, you know, give information. It's not normal. But for that genre, as far as the, the gangbusters, it's very important because you're right, because you don't want everything to be combat because that also doesn't fit the genre either. No, it doesn't. Because, you know, guns hurt really bad and people don't like getting shot at. Really bad. Yeah, and I have that, if you look at the rules, how I do uh, your healing and stuff, well, you have to go to the hospital to actually get healed and it might take you, oh, one hit point a day and you lost 15? Well, guess what? <laughs> Johnny's not doing too well. <laughs> Have you seen the movie The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? Yes. <laughs> okay, so up until I saw that movie, you know, you think you'd have a bad guy. And there's people that could kill this bad guy anytime. You know, yeah. at any time. And you think, well, why did they not do it? Why, when you had all these opportunities, would you not do that? In this movie, I realized that there are some people who are just that scary, even with their back yeah. turned to them, and you're armed, and they're wanting you to shoot them, you're still scared of them that much. And that's, yeah. that is real. That is really a real thing. Real. It's a very real thing. I can tell you that now in real life. That's a very real thing. <laughs> I have a friend who's, uh, who's, who was raised by his grandfather, and his grandfather was very strict. In fact, I think he had a relative that was did something not good to another family member. And the my friend went with his grandpa not knowing what was going on. And the father took a piece of like wrought iron and just beat the guy down in his yard and walked away. And he said his grandfather, when his grandfather was in the hospital dying, he was still afraid of his grandfather. It's like that was my grandmother. She was like that. Woo I would I wouldn't cross her if you pulled a gun on me. I'm like, you gonna have to shoot me. Because yeah. <laughs> I ain't doing it. <laughs> nope, ain't gonna happen. And I think there's a certain <laughs> psychology, you're right, of like, you know, you know, you see these, it's like in the game when we play a game, you know, it's like, well, I'll just go shoot the guy. But in real life, that doesn't really happen for a lot of different reasons. You know, it, it, it just doesn't happen. We, we are intimidated by people. That suit, that presence, that stare in the eye, the reputation, 
you know, that, that, yeah. that does play into real life and how we perceive other people and our ability to deal with that person. Right. Well, just like, for instance, a guy, you put a, a normal person, stand them out there, then you put them in a police uniform. Just that uniform alone changes how you completely deal with this person. Right. How you talk to him, how you answer his questions, how you approach him, everything. Exact same guy could be in jeans and t-shirt. The next day, you walk right by him, but you put in a uniform, bam, completely alter your whole perception. And it's like that in the gangsters. When they put these suits on and get all G'd up and they're ready, that changes the whole, oh, wait a minute. Okay, now I need to be careful around this guy, you know? <laughs> This guy, you know, we all, you know, we're eating beans and soup and we're in the soup kitchen. This guy's down here G'd up, like, what's going on? <laughs> You're paying attention to him. And that's what the game emulates. Well, I think even in real life, that's we do that even not with like policemen, but just even other people. I mean, we do kind of put ourselves in a pecking order, you know, yeah. how people are dressed, how they present themselves, how they speak. And I think we're naturally putting ourselves in alignment with them regardless of how much we say, I don't care what other people think, we do. You do. <laughs> it's, like... it's human nature, you do. <laughs> much as they say they don't, them the ones who usually do the most. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, you know, screw your affiliate. Right, okay, well, all right. Mm -hmm. I know just where you stand. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be the guy, first one crying, and it don't go your way. <laughs> it's just life. <laughs> Yeah, so I know I think it's it's just interesting because I, I I find the, you know, going back to the gaming is in fact, you know, going. Uh, I'm I'm not necessarily a big D and D player. We're playing a fifth uh, fifth edition adventure, and it's like there's really not much opportunities to 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 socially like even only with D and D. There's really not any sort of uh, built in social mechanic to kind of deal with you know, that sort of thing that, you know, like with, with champions, you had presence, right? Oh, yes, that was great. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I never did do it. But it's like, what if you just loaded a character up with just presence? That's all he was. I have a, I have a 60 presence. I don't I can't, I can't lift anything. Guilty. I can't do anything. <laughs> but I got the I got that stare down. <laughs> I was that guilty. <laughs> <laughs> And it's and also with like Shadowrun, they have uh, the face, um, yeah. and and I played a character that I played a, a a short campaign, never played the game before. But I played a guy. My goal was to never shoot, never shoot. I pulled a gun out once and I regretted it because I didn't want that for my character. But uh, you know, in that yeah, game, you can play an effective character who does not at all have to get violent. Yeah, so in those in that game, some of the most dangerous characters. Oh yeah. If played correctly. If you play your a face correctly <laughs> or a fixer, you don't know nothing. Look, whatever you do, don't make him mad because he knows too many people who can make your life miserable. <laughs> and that's how it should be. <laughs> right, exactly. So anyway, I, I, I will say that I do think that the idea of, of looking um, well, to, to look at something like the, the, the turning uh, tables into applying that is absolutely pretty phenomenal, really. I mean, it, that's really, I'm going to say a stroke of genius. I mean, I think genius isn't always just coming up with something right. new, but looking at something that is not obvious, that's not obvious. <clears throat> you, know, you know, when you state it, 
that you did it, <clears throat> I can look back and say, well, that does make sense, but it's not obvious. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're doing. Well, I, I see, you know, the way I envision like clerics may be different from other, other people. I see like they're more, when they do spells, it's a lot of it's inspirational speeching and giving, you know, talking, getting this guy back up, not necessarily, you know, magically putting the men, the bones back together because hit points is not always wounds. Right. It, it is really so turning is presence, you know, making them back, like, you know, commanding. I think of old Hammer movies where he's back demon and that's turning them with their aura and their presence. And that's what I wanted to emulate with, you know, roughing people up. Sometimes you just, you know, lean to a guy, you're going to tell me what I want. <laughs> you're going to pull a Debo on them, you know, what you got on my 40, homie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, oh, okay, hang on. What you mean bite? It's my bite, you know, one of those deals, you know? <laughs> you're going to pull one of those on them. <laughs> Yeah, very, very good. So uh, very clever. So uh, I think we're running against the edge of the uh, the uh, the time stream. So um, but I will say that um, the game, the games that you have listed is on drive through. Yes, the prices are ridiculously affordable. Yeah, and I think that I <laughs> anybody uh, not picking up gangbusters for for a dollar and tall yeah. tales in the front which i'm going to go back and buy now <clears throat> only a couple dollars a piece you know there is i will say so much usable material and thinking <clears throat> that um it'd be, it'd be foolish not to and i and you've also put out a number of adventures and npc cars so this isn't something where you just threw something out there and just walked away you it seems like you're still supporting it uh, through yep. I put out, I've put out more stuff for gangbusters than TSR did. <laughs> <laughs> and I will also say that, you know, uh, I think the two books really complement each other quite well. So, I mean, I think that there's, you know, if, if I think it's worthwhile to pick up the PDF, at least of the original gangbusters, but my goodness, there's so much good information in there as well as the rules and such that you have set up that it's, they just seem like a really even though they're they're you could think of oh they're just the same just republish it's not they, you actually went through and and had to write this whole thing fresh so yeah. it it actually there's some stuff that there's more detail because that was the time um for details that weren't always yeah. necessarily needed but I think for what you have, it is by far a much more playable, quicker to get into uh, system than than the original. But the original well, is also st good stuff. I love the original game. <clears throat> I love it. I looked at all the all the stuff that out for BX over the last forty years. I said I'd be a fool not to make a system for that and let people use all the stuff that's out there. Right. Right. Exactly. So if you if you want to. Uh, do what you think is anathema, and you want to add some deep ones to your <laughs> to your yeah, game. Well, <laughs> you could. I don't know why you'd want to. But there you go. <laughs> why would you do that? Makes no sense. But sure, it's yeah. available. <laughs> right. If you want to, if you want to add ghouls to your western, you want to do. If you want to make a Deadlands style game, you could do that. 
and it's 100% combative right off the bat. Those two games, you can have one character start in the Westerns and be old man in the gangster era. Oh, my right goodness. <laughs> Which I've done. I've played that before. Well, that's really and kind of that, It works. Well, you got to realize, like, um, what's her name? Uh, Andy Oakley. She was around in the 30s. She right. was still out there. Wow. All those guys. Right, Mark? Those guys were still out there. You know, we I had a run adventure when guys found this old lady walking her dog and they robbed her, and it was Andy Oakley, and they found out the hard way that she could shoot real good still. <laughs> <laughs> she, she undressed him with his gun, her, her gun, knocked his shoes off, knocked off. He's like, wait a minute, who did I run across? Yes. You know, it's out there. Yeah, very awesome. So anyway, I just want to thank you for uh, for the interview and what I, and I just highly recommend checking out Mark Hunt's stuff and supporting him. Um, and, um, and just remember for, you know, the people I've been interviewing were, were small time people. I mean, so there's not a lot of, um, financial rewards. So, you know, a, a, a thank you here, a, a purchase there, um, kind of goes a long ways and helps to at least motivate us to kind of keep doing what we're doing. So thanks again, Mark, for joining. Hey, glad to be here. It is time for a deep dive. This section has no formal introduction for Diogo. We were discussing things before the show, and I didn't want to kill the dialogue, but I also realized the conversation that we were having was worth saving. So we will start this interview mid-conversation original work you also work on commission you work you, yeah you uh, have a, a blog you also um do writing for games obviously as we talked about in, in design so when i do a search for you you know one of the things that pops up in on drive through rpg is solar blades and cosmic spells yes so it kind of looks like a thunder the barbarian cartoony 70s style or uh post-apocalyptic well yeah there's two cover traits there is one that's looks more cartoony and there is one that looks more serious because uh it's really a game that you, you can uh do almost anything you want it's a post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic uh sword and sorcery game in space so one of my inspirations to to make it was like i want dark sun like the the post-apocalyptic, everything is screwed up with this uh, sorcerer kings like uh, ruling everything, but in space. So there's like a lot of sectors in the galaxy that have their galaxy overlords, and it's really it can be really green, it can be really dark, but you you can play it more and more goofy too if you want, like inspired by the cartoons, right. because everything is an influence for me. Like we have Thundar, we have Warhammer 40k there, we have Star Wars, we have the Metal Horror comics of the 80s and, and 90s, you know. So, like heavy metal, like the heavy metal comics and heavy metal music too. So, it's really like a hodgepodge of influence for like a, a science fantasy uh, game about uh, space barbarians, uh, star sorceries, like mutants, robots, and and it's screwed up because everything is dominated by this galactic overworld. You have really small pockets of free space. 
So you 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 can you can play as a group that works for the evil guys. You can play as a group of rebels trying to liberate. You can play as smugglers trying to just get by. You know all this all this kind of stuff. So what system? So it's listed as being OSR. So what's the what's the rule set that it's kind of based on? It's based on white hack, and but there is a little bit of. I mean, I took too hard about the 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 book I I talk about, still like an artist from Austin Clean, and I, I got everything that I that I liked from other books and adapted to something that I really wanted to play. So there was influence from from White Hack, Black Hack, Dungeon Crawl Classics, Cough Cthulhu, Fate, uh, Edge of the Empires from Star Wars, and oh. like a lot of stuff. Okay, so but but it's a really simple system. It's like a roll under with difficulty, but you have like something called aspect, which, which is a concept that functions like a fate aspect, yes. you know? So it's really open-ended. So, so you can trace- So, how, so like, uh, so how the aspects really, work. So let's say, so what would be an aspect? Say I got a, a barbarian character, what would be a, p a potential aspect? So you have like four, four uh, archetypes, which would be like the tough, which would be kind of like the, the character that uh, is good on melee and it's really, uh, high endurance, um, high physical capabilities. You have like the the tough, uh, the agile or something like, which is like the the, the rogue. Like you have abilities uh, that you like different criterias. You can hack stuff. You are good at ranged weapons. You have good reflexes and. This kind of stuff you have like the smart which is like the the scientist the gadgeteer you can fix things you can make improvements you can you, you know about science like a lot of knowledge you have like the gifted which would be the sorcerer of the mentalist and this kind of stuff but besides the archetype you have like a concept so you can be the tough but you can be like a uh determined uh, ex gladiator from the planet Sargon. So you know, like you create you, you can really even do some kind of world building because you can specify a place and talk about with the group what this place means. And when you do something that's related to your concept, you get uh advantage on tests, you know. So you, you can say you're like a gladiator, or you can say you're like a bounty hunter. So when you do things like negotiation or trying to track someone being a bounty hunter, you have advantage. And but if you're a gladiator, if you're doing some like dirty trick in combat to to, to like defeat someone, you get an advantage. Or like you try to to gather support from like a crowd, you would get advantage. And if you're like a this smart, you can be like a scientist, a cooler scientist from the from the academy. So you can talk about the academy, uh, and you do something curious, and, and you can use the concept uh, in, against you too. So if you do like some uh, psychological trait or some some defect there, uh, you can use it to 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 get like luck points to do use to to improve your roles and and try something again. So it's really kind of a fate aspect you can do in, in, against you or or. or to our advantage. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the great things that Fate has um, kind of brought to the table 
well, maybe Fudge. I, I never played Fudge, but uh, and I, I think for me, Fate in many ways had it does so many things right, but I just could never get it to quite play right at the table. I think. I think the more I think, yeah. I think it's just games that are more abstract tend to be um, kind of harder for people to grasp than games that have you know a more of a list of rules. So for so for Fantasy Flight, what sort of mechanics did you bring in? Well, I, I brought uh, the complications from Edge of the Empires. So every character, since it's got a sword and sorcery in space, like every character has a problem and maybe he's addicted to gambling or maybe he has like a former enemy. So, and the idea here is that when you, when are in trouble, like every time you, you, you have the looks, the, like a luck score. So you, you test luck to, to, to see if there's something working against you or in your favor. So, but you spend luck to do things too. So there will be a time like your luck score is so low that when you're like reach zero hit points, and you have to test your luck to see if you survive that. And one way to spend your luck is to activate your complication, which that means you say to the game master of the game, okay, I'm activating my complication, and you basically give them like a, a blank check to cash in whatever he wants, and they want to, to insert this complication. So if you're like pro, uh, problems of gambling, he can insert that in the game like afterwards, and, and you'll be like stuck in a table when something important is going on, or he can make your rival show up and complicate things even more for you to get this boost on your luck uh, on that time you need. That's interesting because I think you know again playing FFG, it seems like in many ways, you know, it you can start seeing that there's many ways to subtly put in mechanics from one system into another in a way that doesn't break it, and I think that I think. One is the advantage system from 5e, <clears throat> you know, yeah. worked out nicely. I mean, to the, the advantage. Yeah, with the fate. The advantage is from 5e. The advantage <clears throat> thing from 5e, it's actually, it was made in White Hack. White Hack had it like years before 5e, which is called positive and negative dice. And that's how I call this on my game, because I took it from, from White Hack and not 5e. So, it's basically the same thing, it's advantage and disadvantage, but one hack used to call it positive dice and negative dice. That's from there, you know. Yeah, and I think you kind of remind me a little bit of myself, even though I've never produced sort of volume of work, but I'm very much a play a type of game and think, oh, I like this, but I think I would like it better taking this out and put it into another game that I like. Yeah. And I think there's very few yeah. games I've ever run that are actually utilizing a lot of times i'll take one system game written for a system and just try and apply it to another system completely and i don't know it's always for the best but it's like, it's hard to stop looking at that sort of stuff yeah it's it's fun to play out like to experience with, with things you like and see if it works and you make something unique of okay i guess i mean even the fantasy flight mechanics from the original edge of the empire like the player don't doesn't do not have control over their complication. Right. And in the beginning of the game, the game master like rolls the percentile dice to see if the complication will come in the game. But I, I inspired by the like the easy movement to give the players a little bit of more self-control, like a uh, narrative contribution. I gave them the power to say, okay, I want my complication introduced in the game. 
So they give it the permission for the game master to include it. And so it's like a shared narrative mechanics in a war sort of game. So they say like, ah, it's OSR against story game. But I, I, my games, I try to like combine what I like about like this both worlds, you know? Well, I think there's obviously new technology, we'll call it technology, it gets invented. And so why would we ignore, yeah. you know, something that's, because it actually improves play. I mean, I'm not saying you can't have fun with the way things were done, you know, with the original, you know, however far back you want to go with D&D or whatever game that is, but, you know, but why, why freeze time and not be willing to look at other fun things that will bolt on very easily? Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily improves. It makes another experience, but that was an experience I wanted to have with my game, and it's worked for me. I mean, uh, right. I think the thing is, you know, you know, you know the, even just the concept of shared narrative. I mean, some people believe the DM creates the world and manages the world, and then the players discover the world. <clears throat> Where the flip side is, I'm a GM. Um, I'm only so creative. My players are also creative. If they come up with some yeah. neat idea that they're from some whatever, and then you can take that element and come up with adventure ideas or complications, you know, why wouldn't you want that? Yeah. Well, there, there, there are reasons. There is, there is this, like, this academic work talking about game design called the MDA. I don't know if you heard about it. It's called Mechanics, Dynamics, and Aesthetics. And aesthetics, it's basically the different kinds of, of fun you can engage in a game. And sometimes people discuss this game is, is good or this game is bad because it caters to a different aesthetic right. of fun that they usually like. And the shared narrative thing, it's, it caters to the, to the world building, like the community uh, building part of the aesthetic of fun. But it plays against one other static that's called the discovery. Some people uh, don't want to know anything about the game and want to discover it as they play. But if, but if they're creating it with other players, they are not discovering it. So for some people, that's not so fun. So I, I try to refrain from saying, oh, this is better. I mean, it's better right. for me because I like this, this community creative stuff. But for some people, they don't. But. Well, I think, you know, there's all certain types of games like Call of Cthulhu. I don't necessarily, as a player, I don't want, I don't yeah. want to be creating stuff. I want, that's something I, yeah. I don't want to be, unless I want to say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I don't want to be doing it at all. But I think for, you know, more towards fantasy, I'm, I'm more open to that or to science fantasy sure. or science fiction. But I think the other problem, I guess, comes down to is really, it's, it's, the, it's the table. You know, I've been pretty blessed with players that I, I trust and they trust me and we can we can do things. But I could also have a player that just wants to break the game and burn the world and, and you're say you have to say no, yeah, you yeah. don't get to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like I played a game kinda unrelated. Um but uh, Merle Rasmussen, who wrote Top Secret, we ran a game. He ran a game at a convention. And what he did is he handed out objects. And you could pick one, you keep passing around until you pick two. And I had dynamite and a briefcase full of plutonium. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I thought I got a dirty bomb now, but I never got a chance to use it. But I mean, I think the idea is that when you kind of can throw elements out to the players that can dramatically change the situation, you know, there's a lot of risk, right? But if you got the right players, it could be yeah. a payoff. You know, giving a first level yeah, character a Vorpal sure. Sword or a Holy Avenger may be a bad idea, or it could be the best idea. Yeah. I mean, one of my games, like the, the, the Dark Streets and Darker Secrets game, there is a mechanic called the Weird Item. Every character started with, with an item. Like, it, it seems ordinary, like, like a, a broken watch or like a, a blood-soaked um, shovel or right. something. And, but they are weird. They, they will do something. You don't specify it what they do in the beginning of the game, but as the game goes on, you can say, okay, I think my, 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 bell, my bell here, when I play it, it, it makes a, a, like a field of silence. And you and you try to do it, and you roll your luck, and if you succeed, that's what your weird item do. They they create something. So it's kind of a creative thing that the players do in the game, and they create it as they play. And I had some really good moments on on tables with that, like people like using weird items to create, uh, like to solve problems. That wouldn't otherwise be solved uh, without it, you know. Like, I love the I, one of the things I love about DCC is like in the zero level funnel that players have this this strange items they begin with, and they find they find way to solve problems with them. And I, I love this this like this natural thinking that games sometimes uh, encourage. So for dark streets and darker secrets, I mean, this is also. Uh, urban fantasy, right? So the question is, you're using also using um, yeah, it's it's like a sword. And... Oh, oh, go ahead. Sure. Well, I would say it's, it's so uh, you're using the, the OSR system. So are you? So what are you using for for the the rules? Is this, is this a similar thing that you use for? Um, yeah. The other. It's the same system from Solar Blaze and Cosmic Spells. I mean, my first game was Sharp Swords and Sinister Spells. Uh, but, like, Sword Blades made some, some uh, revisions of it. And Dark Streets is the same system as Sword Blades. But it's, like, uh, my idea was to make a sword and sorcery game on our time. So it's kind of uh, a dark, kind of part of my World of Darkness, too. So having, like, supernatural stuff. And there's some X-Files influence there, like both the Vampire Slayer, Supernatural, and Green. Like there's this fairy tale stuff that can go on there too. And it's like a dark world and it's corrupt. Actually, it's it's really like like real. It's really inspired by the place I live. So there's <laughs> violence, there is inequality, there is corruption. And and, and I, I when I play it, I play in Rio de Janeiro. I have a campaign called Hell in Hell in Rio, so it's it's like there's a uh, you know you know uh, in both the Vampire's Lair they said Sunnydale is on the Hell's mouth. Yeah. Yeah, in Rio de Janeiro we say it's on the the Hell's like ass yeah. or something. So that's that's the the, the thing we 
I, I do here, so playing Rio, like hell in Rio. And then I have politicians in the campaign. Um, the mayor is like a main villain and things <laughs> like that. But it's kind of interesting. It's kind of, uh, have you ever played Shadowrun? Yeah. So it, it's kind of, but not futuristic, but it's that kind of gritty, dirty. Noir yeah. kind of style of game, yeah. With supernatural elements and vampires and, and aliens. So, so, uh, so what have you done differently with this, with this chassis? Has there been anything dramatically different as far as mechanics go? Well, I mean, there is this, uh, I'm releasing a, a supplement for Dark Streets and Darker Secrets called War of the Magi, which is like a supplement for sorcerer characters from like various factions and clans that each have their, their role. There, there is this, this forbidden clan that's coming back to power and it, it's starting a war. And there is like, a, I made a new magic system that's really open-ended. And each character has like words they know, you know, like you, you can know like mirror, fire, and and I don't know, shield. So you, you combine like make a fire shield spell or a mirror shield or a, like uh, fire, fire. I don't know. You mix it up and like you know certain right. words and can mix it up, and and you can make any effects you can come up with. And there's like a mechanics to determine like the range, the cost, and, and it's magic can corrupt you. One of the things that, that I like it to do too is for you to, to like, you can learn more words as you play, but one of the things you can do, you, you can drain words for other uh, magicians. So if you kill another magician, you can try draining their, their words from, from their minds and they, they lose. So it's kind of Highlander with a little bit of Harry Potter and, and World of Darkness, you know. That's definitely a very interesting take. What what kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of influences coming together rather than just a, a straightforward one thing. Yeah, that's that's what I learned from still like an artist. Like, if you if you steal for, for just one person, you're like, it's plagiarism. Like, it's a copy or you'll be the new someone. But if you steal from like a lot of places and Mix it up with some of your own ideas. So suddenly, you're like original, you're original, or you're you're doing your own thing. You know, I I I, I think the secret is not to just do one thing. Like you might be influenced from for a lot of stuff that you like, and, and you eventually come up with your own thing. Like they they call it serendipity too. Like when you when you let uh, disparate things connect to each right. other. To make something new. So, you for these you've you've uh, so you do the you've done the writing, you've done the mechanics, and um, so. Has there been any challenges that you found in doing these things, or have you been solely just building up your toolbox as you go, or have you had to? Oh yeah, sometimes I, I get stuck and I, I just started working on something else. And then I come back, you know, I, I shift from project to project, uh, like to avoid the burnout, as I said, like never stop writing. But if you're having trouble with something, I have, I have like a, a notebook full of ideas 
more like 50 stuff that I want someone to publish. And I just start something else. And when I get stuck there, I come back to another project and, and I finish it. So, uh, yeah, I sometimes get stuck there and, and I work on something else. I don't know sometimes what's the difficulty. I mean, sometimes the difficulty is having money, like to pay artists to start making stuff. And we try to, to make do with what we have, you know. Yeah, it's hard. And it's hard. I even discussed with Mark. It's just there's not a lot of money in these. And, and you know, and people do deserve, you know, for good work, need to be paid for what they do. But, boy, it's just yeah. it's like, you know, like with ZineQuest, like, okay, you want to pay somebody to proofread it. Okay, you want to, then you want to, maybe you should get an editor. I don't know. And then if you want to start paying for art, I just, I just bought a cover, paid for a cover. And it's yeah. just like, you, you, you could spend all your, I mean, you could drain any amount of money you could ever make so easily because we're, yeah. <laughs> the money's we're talking about ourselves. But with you, you're pretty fortunate. And I think that you're, uh, <clears throat> that you both write, you do the, you do some um, mechanics. You also do art, you do your layout. And I think that's kind of where we're at as far as a lot of people to try and be successful. You have to be at least um, uh, moderately uh, good at different things. I mean, you, you can't just. Well, there are people doing really, really well and they, they just write for something. So I don't, I don't know if it's really necessary for you to, to do a lot of stuff. I tried to do it because I, I started trying to, to my first game, like Sharp Swords, I, I made it all by myself, so I had to, to do this stuff. But then there's people like uh, Daniel Sell from Troika. I mean, they, he just wrote stuff. I don't think he did layouts. He didn't do art. You know, he, he paid every people. And, and I think Troika is doing really good. Yeah. Right? And the guy from uh, Zachary Cox, who from Best Left Buried, he just wrote, he had a friend to do art. So one of the options you, uh, that we're, we're trying here in Brazil with well, a, a small group of uh, Brazilian creators, like doing uh, co-op work. Like you, you talk to an artist to say, let's do a project together. I, I don't have much to pay you right now. I can pay you this much, but we do it together. And the profit we split or we do right. like both of everyone takes responsibility and invests in the, in the thing and if it does well everybody gains i mean not everybody will be up for that but some people will and it's a fair, fair thing to do too because everybody's putting their their thing on the line and everybody will work, will work hard to promote it so oh, I agree. sometimes it's even better than then you pay everyone and you're you're there alone trying to promote it, but if you have like five people promoting one thing instead of one, like you have more chance of people knowing about it and supporting. It, I guess. Yeah, and I think once you get to the point of you having a reputation or having friends, but just starting right out, if you go up to an artist and say, you know what, I want you to produce some really nice art, I'm very picky about. I don't even know if I'll get to pay you. If I do, it probably won't be very much. You gotta have somebody that's already, you know what I mean. You don't do like that too. Like, <laughs> but you don't do like that too. Like I mean, when I when I when I work with artists, I, I usually want them to create some. I want you to collaborate right. with something. I I will I will give you like a vague premise and and please create uh, on it. 
make your own improvements, make your interpretations. I want to, I really want to corroborate. I don't want to like be too picky. Because I'm an artist too, I I, I try to respect what their, their visions are as well. So I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But it's just it's just starting out, and it's like you know, even like a person that's a writer to say they can write, you know, if they don't have the money, like they don't have a friend that can do the layout or put up together a decent because if you look at drive through, I mean, you, the writing needs to be solid, but honestly, it's like, if that cover looks terrible, it's probably not going to get many clicks. Yeah. Cover, cover is really, really important. Yeah. And then even yeah. the layout, it's, if you, if you only have like a small amount of money, try to get the best cover you can. The interior doesn't need to be super sleek. No. But the cover has, has to be something. That's, that draws it. It's also just easy to make some really stupid mistakes with layout when you don't even know what you're doing. I mean, and I think that's another yeah. thing. You're right. It doesn't have to be fancy, but it also can't be bad either. Yeah. And so it. But, it, but there, there's, there's a way to do like an, a clean, nice, easy to use layout that won't be like spark any, any right. awards, it won't be like more core or something. But you, you can do like plain old. Uh, white backgrounds, two columns, image on the one one side, and right. But I, I find if, if you're just doing like know. a wall of text, that's hard to to, to you know to uh, yeah. You have to 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 play with like white space, and you have yeah. to match your so, text. Break that's kind of what I'm coming back to. It's like you, there there is you know that is something you have to learn. You can't just like take a word document and just dump it because you have to really think yeah. about usability, and it's it's not easy, you know and to, to try and do this on your own and and but i think as small publishers I mean, extremely small like me i like tiny like but it's it's like if i want to make it look good it's there's right now unless i can bank up enough money to start you know paying for some of that stuff yeah. it's it's definitely something you have to learn yeah but as i said it's still like an artist get a, get some books you right. like and you think they lay out school and and you think it would be easy to do and and look at them and try to replicate them on some. Oh yeah, I agree. You, know? you you learn a lot of, by you learn a lot by doing that, like looking at some work and trying to to take the rationale behind it and apply it to Yeah, your get own. the ruler out. Get get the document out that you want to yeah. look at, look at what size things are, look at the gaps between things, pay attention how to use fonts. Exactly. Yeah. You know, headers, you know, what would they do for the headings? So yeah, there's there's ways of doing it, but you have to get very forensic and that's what i do a lot of the things i've been buying is just so i can kind of get inspired and understand how they did things yeah i mean yeah i am all for spirit. like i have like a a really big like library here of stuff that i, I get to be inspired by i guess and i think what's also I've been noticing with kickstarter and with all these indie publishers is they are producing books that are much more visually engaging than the big publishers. Oh, uh -oh. yeah, some of them, yes. Yeah, I mean, but like like Morkborg. because they they can try to they can they can be more risky, you know. They, yeah, and also it's like sure, even even back then. Yeah, and, and they they're also not necessarily worried about necessarily the profit margins either. Yeah. I mean, and, and as far as I know, from the from the big publishers that I tried to 
that I look around for from like freelance uh, writing gigs and stuff, uh, the indie publishers pay a lot better than big publishers. I mean, as far as I know, I've I have been paid uh, twenty words, uh, twenty cents per word for for small indie publishers, and I see like big ones that they wow, I would love to work for them, and they pay three, four, five cents a word, and it's it's mixing. Why? Why are they paying so low? If they probably have like a a much bigger uh, budget, you know. Yeah. Well, I think there's you know for some it's they definitely have also more overhead, which is part of it. But also they've got um, they've got sh uh, shareholders to pay. They're going to pay, and then they yeah. and they're they're large companies that that think like large companies. And, and, yeah, and they know that's. You, someone will will be willing to write for them even for for that amount because they they will be able to say oh I wrote for this and this game that's like a big game. Well, I think it's kind of like even with the movie theaters uh, or movie uh, companies. It's like with a superhero movie, they want to make over a billion dollars, and if they don't get yeah. over a billion dollars, it's considered a failure. But Probably you and I are thinking like, do it for less money, make it a much better movie that's much more interesting than some generic movie that you're trying to yeah. you're trying to do a home run, but make a good and movie. And pay people yeah. well instead. I mean, oh, go ahead. There was this guy that posted a book on the on a group on Facebook, minimalist RPGs, like the ultimate micro RPG book. And people, oh, what's that? And people are kind of interested. And someone posted that, okay, I know people who did this. And then, like forty games, they paid people really well for for the book, and people got excited to know that the the collaborators, the writers of the book, got really well paid, and they want to support this kind of work. So I don't know. I think if people knew more about how the how the industry works, how people are paid, how they are treated, I think uh, there could be even uh, better support for some of this. This publishers, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the value of of Kickstarters is that um, you can put out there, you know, if this funds beyond a certain amount, we're going to add X amount of art, and people say, okay, now I know that my money is going to support artists because there's a lot of people who enjoy, you know, supporting artists where they can, and I think that's, I think the idea with Kickstarter yeah. where you can actually put that out there and people see where their money's going, uh, definitely. And you can pay more. There, there's Kickstarter to do this. Okay, if we get this amount, we will pay more for our collaboration. Yeah, like there is, there is this. I wrote for for Adapt Adapt Icarus, the Iron RPG. A one of their Kickstarter goals was, I I read, I was paid like uh, twenty cents per word, but they 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 amounted more money, so they ended up paying like twenty four cents wow. per word because of one of their goals was to pay even more. So I think that's great, and people people see this and they they get motivated to to collaborate more with the creators because they know they they will be well taken care of. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. So um, so through all those experiences, I mean, is there anything that kind of like where do you see this going for you? You're producing zines, you're producing books. So where do you see the kind of the future going for yourself? Well, uh, as I talked to you before, like we started recording, my plan is to 
to move to Portugal this year and quit my day job and start working with writing games and making art and maybe even make some comics, open a publisher to, to publish games from Brazil for the international markets and maybe do that with other Latin America creators. We started like a hashtag on, on Twitter called RPG Latam, which RPG Latin America. And we're trying to, to increase awareness of all creators, artists, and writers from, from the RPG community uh, that are from Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, and all other countries of Latin America. And maybe I, I want to work someday on a, on a magazine that focus on, on, on creators from this part of the world that I think have an interest perspective on the, on the, on the games in general, you know? So I want to do that. I want to do more games and more art and comics and, and start expanding my artistic horizons, you know? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think it's really pretty astounding that you have a full-time job, <clears throat> you have a family, and then you're able to still produce all this content. So it, uh, <laughs> make good use of your time. Yeah, I, I try to, and, and that's what I thought. I mean, if I, I, I started making some good amount of money this year, and I thought maybe if I, I, I dedicate all my time to do that, maybe I will have enough to, like uh, take care of my family and and get out of of here because of of the the situation I explained to you before. Like it's the violence and, and the corruption and everything that's going on in Brazil. So I I'll try to do that and work on something that I love, which is making games, writing, and making art. Yeah, and I and I, and I don't know if this will go. It's because this was way in the beginning but i mean the amount of violence that you're you're witness to is actually pretty extreme and you're not living in poverty yeah. either you're just a you yeah. know you're a normal person yeah, working a normal job yeah I'm, I'm middle class in brazil and of course there's people living way worse conditions than i am but even even so it's it's like as i said uh, if i'm taking my my kid to the hospital i have to choose if i put him on a car seat to protect him from accidents, or I don't put him on car seats to protect him from from robbers that may may assault us and don't don't, don't give us time to take him out of the car seat because this happens yeah, all, all the time in the news. You see parents that lost their their child because uh, criminals didn't give them time to to take the the kid off the car seat and, and things like yeah, that. and also gunfire. You have to just stay at work sometimes later just because there's gunfire and yeah. gang violence going on. Yeah. There's helicopters going with machine guns and <laughs> shooting and, and stuff like that. It's it's a war yeah. zone, really. Yeah, so I, I think that's really, I think the idea that you could actually live in a country where you don't have to deal with all that, uh, that maybe you can be even more productive is, is definitely a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure your wife would be much happier. Uh, not having to have that yeah. constant threat. Yeah, she, she she's being really supportive, and and she's just helping me like plan everything out. And... Well, I think there's definitely opportunities, um, like you mentioned, with Gallant Night Games, with yourself, with Kickstarters, with Patreon. Uh, I think there's a a number of avenues you can go, and uh, hopefully that works out well. 
but it sounds like a, yeah. a lot of wonderful content's coming our way over the years from you. Yeah, I hope I can I can keep this up and then make more more games and uh, work on on different things too. Like I'm planning to start a Patreon uh, in January, and I want to do a little bit of art, a little bit of game design. I want to start making like comic strips uh, based on RPGs and stuff. Yeah, I always wanted to to do that and and see how it goes. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's definitely a, a good venue, and there's nothing you don't really lose anything by by doing that, going that route. Yeah. So, anyway, best of luck to you. It's been great talking to you, Diogo. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff, take, for inviting oh, me. No problem. Take care. Thank you for listening to RPG Ramblings. I am Jeff Jones, and I can be reached at i underscore am underscore Jeffrey at Twitter. And I also started an RPG Ramblings Facebook group. Until next week, take care, my friends. This is Jeff. I think I think uh, this is a oh, short yeah, one. You're not, you're not, yeah, good. You're not calling at some obscene hour either. This is good. All right. Well, uh, my wife gets upset when I do that. I and I do. I have to kind of like. My wife know. gets upset when you do that. So I yeah. Kind of like, uh, yeah. Synergy there. I don't. I don't. I don't want to get you in trouble. So anyway, I decided to call a little bit earlier. But um, you know, you talk. We talked the other day, and you kind of mentioned kobolds and. Or, or goblins and goblins being the new kobolds and orcs and hobgoblins and you know well, basically, of, basically that kobolds have were insignificant and could be lost and nobody would miss them but yeah go ahead well i'm thinking like with gary gygax i mean we don't know what he's really thinking do we i mean he's you know been gone for a long time he's not yeah, answering these questions yeah and uh you know if you think about like there's a huge write-up for each one of them in the monster manual. And the only thing that varies between each of those creatures is the most minimal, minimal amount of hit points. Like, like, you know what, like one hit die, one hit die plus one, whatever. And it's like, what was he thinking when he came out with like six things that are all basically the same that only differ in areas that don't really matter. Like maybe one's got, I don't know, let's say two to 200 appearing, maybe another one's got, you know, one to 100 appearing. All the most superficial ways, why in the world do we have this delineation between all these races that are basically the same? Well, you know, the spice of life is variation. If, if everything you come across is an orc, then you're really gonna learn to hate orcs. Uh, yeah, and I I just wish that uh, the DMG from the one E uh, explained what hit dice actually were better than they did because I had no clue. I read I, I read like August four hit dice plus one, and I didn't have the monster manual just the player's handbook of the DMG. So I was like, why would you give something four plus one hit points? Just make it five. It's a lot easier. So to me, that variation of uh, 
plus one was just was just an extra hit point, hit die. It was simultaneous for my first six months of gaming. Um, but that minimal variation, everything is is what the image is in your mind. Uh, and yeah, there isn't much difference between uh, an orc and a goblin, except for maybe how you play them out when the party encounters them and how they negotiate with the party or how they threaten the party and how the combat tactics are. But, but, so, but, back, but back then, I don't think there was any sort of personality between them. Did you ever no, think... There were. It... I, I think there was because um, your ability to parlay uh, and their morale might have differed. Now, if we're going back to the white box, which I, which I own, and I will, will admit, never played as written, so I cannot tell you how it plays out. Um, gameplay is certainly going to be different than uh, basic or AD&D. At that point, we'd already gotten campaigns going and, and people role-playing stuff out in between the main adventures or what, whatnot. And to me, I've always figured goblins were more willing to negotiate because maybe they weren't as strong and they were more interested in numbers, whereas orcs are going to be more arrogant and uh, more more forceful, but that's how I always interpret it as a DM. Uh, I'm sure others have interpreted it differently, or not at all. Some campaigns, it might not come up at all. Remember, this is all uh, gameplay based upon its own evolution within your campaign and your, your GM, so. You don't think you're uh, just padding the book? Like he said, you know what? The guy came to him and says, you know what? We still have like five more pages to fill and we have to do it by tomorrow. He's like, you know what? I'll just take the orc and I'm just going to change its name six times and create uh, six different creatures and already, change the details. Well, no, they did that with Monster Manual 2 when they had the O'Grillion and, and other bizarre shit that was uh, built off of prior races or let's get these seven extra different types of giants or how many more different types of dragons do we need? I think the original Monster Manual did it cover a lot of shit that maybe it didn't need to. I had well, looking around at my desk. I have one next to me uh, when I was on my own podcast the other day. And yeah, there's some the, the filler stuff is like mostly in my mind. The giant gar. Who the fuck is fighting a giant gar? Any deep sea creatures that are in that book are are, are fillers. Honestly, nothing that a starting party or even a mid-level party is ever going to encounter. But... So, so, so I tell you, then you think that having all those those divisions is actually was actually important, or maybe it actually helpful for you? Uh, I'm not going to say how important it was. I think it was. I think it was helpful, and I don't think it was filler. I think Gary based a lot of those creatures off of lore and myths from uh, Northern and Central Europe. And, uh, you know, this is stuff that he extrapolated from. It's, it's before the internet when we could just go on and do a search and like, I wanted to create a new creature. Uh, let me put a few keywords into Google and see what comes up. And, oh, look, Indonesia has whatever. You know, I, I could rip off that. You know, Gary went with his, his source material. 
Yeah, but I don't know how close it really was. I think he just all he did was just use. He just, he just took a name and says, you know what, Goblin? Okay, I'll just take the orc and just uh, subtract a few hit points. Well, it, again, it doesn't have to be necessarily accurate because how many myths and lores are you going to read about dwarves and how many follow Tolkien's way of describing a dwarf or uh, the Scandinavian way of talking about dwarves? And there's this whole... It's it's all quote fiction anyway, right? Or it's lore, it's fiction. Uh, what's new interpretations of the fiction? Mm. And that's all Gary was was doing. And if he takes a whole cloth, especially from fiction, then you would say he's perjuring. And, and you don't. Yeah, he wouldn't do that. We have, we have enough. Of he wouldn't do that. No. You know, I feel better about this now, Eric. I, you know, I was kind of all worked up and, you know, you read stuff on the internet and people get you wound up and then you like, and you talk to somebody reasonable like you and. Oh, I, I'm reasonable. <laughs> no, that's, 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 stop smoothing me now, man. All right. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I feel much better now. And uh, anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You got it. Uh, talk to you later. Is that a threat?